Lori Ryland, PhD, Chief Clinical Officer from Pinnacle Treatment Centers, joins us to talk about addictive disorders and the many ways she has encountered them in her career. She talks about being aware of her own vulnerabilities, having lived experience, the evolution of the industry, and her work with Pinnacle. Enjoy. Welcome to the Illuminate Recovery Podcast. We shed light on mental health issues, mental illness, and addiction recovery ways to cope, manage, and inspire. Beyond the self-care we will discuss, you may need the help of a licensed professional. My name is Kurt Nider. I'm a husband, father, entrepreneur, a handyman, and a student of life. I avoid conflict, I deflect with humor, and I'm fascinated by the human experience. And I'm Shelly Mangum. I am a clinical mental health counselor, and my favorite role of all times is grandma. I am a seeker of truth, and I feel like life should be approached with tremendous curiosity. I ask the dumb questions. I fill in the gaps. The Illuminate Recovery Podcast is brought to you by Illuminate Billing Advocates. Make billing and collection simple with leader in substance abuse and mental health billing services. Verification and analysis of benefits, pre-authorizations, utilization management, accurate claim submission and management, denial and appeal management, and industry-leading reporting. Improve your practice's cash flow and your ability to help your clients with Illuminate Billing Advocates. Um, today, Kurt and I get to meet with Lori Ryland. Lori is a PhD with a lot of initials behind her name. She's the Chief Clinical Officer at Pinnacle Treatment Center. Um, in 2017, she had, was given the Outstanding Alumni Award for her contributions in the field of addiction. Um, for over 20 years, she's been working with addictive disorders, serious mental illness, and developmental disabilities. Um, She's very proficient in accreditation and regulatory standards. Um, She's also trained in Black Belt Six Sigma methodology. And her doctoral dissertation was on anger management strategies with the inmate population. And she has a lot of other um, very significant accomplishments and awards that we won't won't hit them all because it would make (laughs) you sound really incredible. um, Lori, I love that you're with us today, and, and I'm so excited for some of our listeners to get to know you a little bit better, because I love the way you think about treatment. Thank you, Shelley. I'm so happy to be here. Um, it's, and it's kind of exciting. I know you've worked with Pinnacle for a long time, and you've been in the industry for a long time. Um, maybe talk for a little bit about how you ended up in substance abuse and mental illness, because that's not everybody's dream and desire. It certainly wasn't sure. mine, but... It sure seems to, it kind of, like it chases me. I don't know. I, I, I kind of like, no, I want to go here. And it goes, oh, no, you're not. You're coming back here. So talk That's about your exactly journey. Right. And, and, you know, you couldn't have said it better. My, I couldn't have said it better myself. That's sort of what happened to me as well. You know, as I started navigating early in my career, many of the, um, the, the specialty areas that piqued my interest also had addiction treatment components, you know, so, you know, I started my, um, my um, pre-doctoral internship year working with the VA Medical Center with um, combat PTSD, sexual assault in the military, and, you know, addiction residential treatment and therapeutic community. And, you know, in every realm that I worked in, you know, addiction was a prevalent issue. You know, so I I started out, you know, early on, you know, working pretty closely with addictive disorders and um, and it it just, you know, 
as I as I gained more expertise throughout my career, it just became more clear that this was an area that um, was particularly interesting to me. Um, and and you know, I've I've worked in various aspects, you know, such as with serious and persistent mental illness, with co-occurring specialty disorders, um, you know, and and even behavior analysis. You know, I do a lot of work with acceptance and commitment therapy and contingency management. And what we do. Very cool, very cool, and I, and I can tell that you you're more on the um, the technical side, meaning you 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 know the words right you know all the technical stuff um and 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 the best practices um and and applying those in treatment which is important that's an important aspect whereas maybe someone who's sitting down with a client you know and using motivational inter- uh, interviewing isn't gonna maybe use the same kind of terminologies that you do Oh, absolutely. That's definitely the case. You know, I do um, work more on that side of, you know, what works, you know, what do we know and what does the research show that is effective with our population, you know, and, uh, you know, Pinnacle is um, strives to, you know, not only be innovative, but to make sure that we're using, you know, behavioral treatments and medication assisted treatment that has been shown to work, you know, um, and that we have, you know, excellent um, ways to track whether or not patients are able to access our services and whether they're receiving enough of our services in order to be successful in recovery. That's a good explanation. Um, I, um, I, you know, I'm thinking about uh, the best practices, right? The best practices, we do research and we try and figure out what's working best. And, and we know that research is only as good as the data. Right. And, and so, but it helps us get a little bit closer. Has there ever been research that comes out that you kind of go, really? Like, I don't think that's true. I don't know if you have an idea, but I'm thinking about like um, medication assisted treatment, right? In the, in the recovery industry, the old school thought process is if you're on any kind of medication, you're not really sober. And right. we've been fighting that stigma and that thought process for a long time. I'm wondering if you've come across any like that or want to talk about, you know, the MAT, because obviously it's very valuable. Absolutely. And, you know, that's a really good example because, you know, having worked in the industry for over 20 years, you know, there have been a lot of changes that have occurred in the addiction treatment industry in the past 20 years. So, you know, part of, you know, um, being aware of, of, you know, trends and improvements in treatment protocols you know, we're able to see, you know, that, you know, we're able to adapt and change as better technologies come in. Now, um, medication-assisted treatment has been proven to be even more effective than medications alone and behavioral treatment alone, because although some, you know, think medication-assisted treatment is literally just medication, it's not. It's a combination of medication to help you know, alleviate cravings and help stabilize brain functioning and, you know, reduce, you know, some of the euphoric aspects of the substances, you know, those are all true and very vital components, but it's more than that. You know, it is a combination of counseling and groups and other types of treatment to help support the medication-assisted treatment modality. Now, you know, but when you look at outcomes, You know, it is clear that especially for the opioid use disorder population, that medication-assisted treatment is is extremely effective and and saves lives. And it does regularly, especially when it can be an injection where they don't have to try and remember to take that 
you know, that pill every day that really helps them right. manage the, the mental illness and the other things that are going on that are, they're biological, they're physiological. They don't get to choose those and they really have to work hard to change some of those things and some of them they can't change. Right, right, exactly. I know that I've heard a lot of conversations, um, some, a lot of research is going on as of recent about psychedelics and even Kratom as, as one of those kind of medication and managements that they're saying is really making a difference. Do you have much of an insight on those types of approaches? You know, I don't, you know, I do know that, you know, the FDA advises against Kratom, you know, that they find that it's not as effective as, as people are claiming it is and that it has some pretty harmful side effects. Um, you know, as we do, you know, as I did mention, you know, we're focused on, you know, being, you know, innovative and aware of the research. We are aware of, you know, any types of new um, medications that are that are approved uh, that are proven and um, approved for use with our population. Um, kratom is not one of those, um, so I don't really have, you know, a lot of, you know, insight into that. Other than, you know, we we tend to um, avoid anything that is advised against. Which I think is wise, um, and, right. and you know, and some want to push up against that because there's, you know, they're looking at some of the positive results that have come, but maybe not being as critical about about where that data came from as maybe they need to be. Right, and we have, you know, um, federal regulatory bodies that determine, you know, the safety of the substances that you know are are um, approved. So, you know, we definitely rely on on what is approved protocols. So I want to ask you, maybe get a little bit more, you know, more about Lori and Lori's, Lori's world. Um, when I was in school as a therapist, um, they would always say, in order to be a good therapist, you've got to do your own work. You've got to, right. you got to go get your own therapy. Has that proven true for you? And, and what's your experience in that? You know, that's a really good question. And I definitely think there's truth to that. You know, that if, if we're not aware of our own vulnerabilities as just being humans, all humans have vulnerabilities and, and, um, and issues that we, we deal with. If we're not aware of our own, we can't really um, help others to the extent that we can if we're aware. Um, you know, I, for one, you know, I, I have a daily meditation practice, you know, so it's just a part of my life. It's, um, it's something that I do regularly, and I think it's extremely important to me because it helps me be more present. Um, you know, even, even when I am working with a patient, you know, I want to be there with the patient, and I want to be as present as possible and not caught up in my own world, right? You know, that's not going to be very helpful. So, you know, that's just one example, but obviously if someone has, you know, uh, you know let, let's talk about, you know, what, what is... Um, uh, does happen in our field, which is, you know, we, we, you know, strive to hire people who have lived experience, right? So, um, you know, when you're hiring someone who has lived experience, that's great. And, and that person can really connect at a real level with that patient. But they also um, need to realize that it may not be the right industry for them if they're consistently struggling, and they're finding that it's more difficult to maintain their own recovery because of the work they're doing, you know, so not being aware that that is, a, is an extremely stressful situation, you know, for someone who, who is in recovery to be, um, you know, facing, you know, situations with people who are using and actively relapsing and, you know, overdoses, you know, that it, it, can, it can be very trying. 
So it's definitely important for someone who has, you know, um, addiction history, um, trauma history, you know, different types of, of significant issues that they're, they're doing their own work in addition to doing treatment. Otherwise, they, it could harm them. It could also harm the people they're working with. Well, and it's absolutely vital. I remember, you know, being taught about, you know, transference and countertransference in school, and they would talk about it. But it wasn't until I got into practice and watched it happen to me that I went, oh, I had no idea that it could show up like this, right? Or that I could get triggered because this is something that's going on in my life. And and so learning what I might want to avoid, right, the types of therapy approaches or, or situations that I might want to, tr- to not focus on because those are harder and I need to do more work, right? And, and, right? and the thing that I really love about that approach and what you talk about is that we get to, we have the right to be human and that it's not shaming, right? There's so often Absolutely. that we feel shamed because this comes up like somebody that, you know, struggles with PTSD, they've had lots of trauma that's not just going to go away, right? They can do continue to do work on that, but that's going to show up sometimes and they've got to learn how to self-care there too. Absolutely. And that, that does touch on, on another um, area that I've worked on a lot in, in my, my positions, not, not just this one, but you know, when you're working in addiction treatment, which is really not easy, right? I mean, there are some challenges that come, you know, to, with working with, with the addictive population. Um, you know, you need to make sure that the treatment that you're providing is is hopeful. It's motivating. It it, it um, elicits people wanting to come into treatment. You know that 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 they want to they want to work with you. It's, at times, you may run into a staff member that their response to addiction is punitive. You know, or blaming, um, or it exacerbates that shame response. And you have to be ready to address that and to work through it with the staff member or work the staff member out of the position if, it, if it's not the right position for them, because, you know, it's, it's just not effective. You know, so having, you know, expectations within treatment that if you don't do X and Y, you're going to be punished is not it's not treatment. It's not. But isn't that how treatment started? It, it used yeah. to be so punitive. It's like, oh. yeah, no, no, no. And, and we're going to break you down and we're going right. to build you back up after we do that. And I'm like, yeah, that's traumatizing if you ask me. Right. <laughs> and the expectation that if someone isn't, you know, um, begging for treatment, they're not at rock bottom. I mean, there's a lot, you know, we've come a long way in treatment as far as understanding that we meet patients where they are, that wherever they are showing up, that's that's fine. Um, and you know, I, and I, I guess you know, as an industry, we need to be not too hard on ourselves because even the payer expectations have changed significantly. So, so being able to get authorization for treatment when a patient is not at the very end, <laughs> right, <laughs> is a huge a huge win you know, for us and for treatment, because it is more respectful of where the patient is and they don't have to have lost everything in order to get treatment. Yeah, definitely. That's come a long ways. And there's days that we fight for, you know, for a client's benefits or authorization. And it's like, what? These, this person is legitimately suicidal and you just turn them down for residential treatment. Like, like you really want to take responsibility for that. And the, every now and then you just get someone that goes, yeah, I'm, I'm going to do that. And I'm like, oh, that's a bad idea. Like, that's so bad. Yes. <laughs> it's I, not right, I right? <laughs> I, um, I wonder, Lori, if you could talk a little bit about your experience working with the VA, because I know that they do a lot of 
of real cutting edge kinds of research there. Um, and it's probably been a while since you've worked there, but I'm curious what yeah. your experience was there. That it is, and it's. It, I'm sitting here, you know, calculating in my mind. I'm thinking, oh my gosh, it's been 21, 22 years since I worked at the VA. So I mean, that was just yesterday. It's like, a I... old, actually. But, uh, no. So, um, so my experience with the VA was a very positive one. Um, you know, like I said, I worked in um, both a residential treatment unit for um, combat PTSD. And then I worked with a women's unit um, that at the time was, you know, all women, but it wouldn't have to be women that was um, focused on sexual assault that occurred in the military, um, which was often by people they knew, right? Um, and, and often, you know, something that they weren't supposed to talk about or disclose, you know, back then, it was, um, it was just a very shaming situation. And then also, um, like I mentioned, residential addiction detox treatment. And um, there was a therapeutic community as well that I was part of that um, was set up in like a barracks um, scenario uh, at the VA campus. So, um, so you know, I, it, it, you know, I really had a good experience. Now, I, ha I do have colleagues that have continued their work in the VA. And, and from my understanding that it has just continued to grow as far as um, improvement and, you know, treatment and modalities, just like, you know, our industry as well. So a great deal of respect, you know, for the work they do with the VA. I would think I was talking to somebody the other day and, and, and I don't want to, I don't want to taint the military because the military, I love what the military does. I love these people, these men and women that are willing to go out and, you know, fight for our freedoms because I think it's incredible, but there's imperfections. There's there's weak points in any system and oh yeah and when you you know when you're working with women who have been sexually assaulted probably by their cohorts right their right. their right. team members it creates a real unsafe environment for these women and yet there is a place for women in the military and so i don't right. know if you have a perspective on that but but i find that someone was telling me the other day they said if a if a woman is not married in the military she will be sexually assaulted or raped and i thought that's a pretty f blanket statement that that I right. was concerned about. Absolutely. And, you know, like I mentioned, the work that I did was, you know, 21 years ago. So um, my understanding is that it has it has improved considerably, you know, the expectations and the ability to, you know, disclose and receive assistance has improved a lot. Um, but, you know, for the individual women that I worked with, it was devastating. You know, oh, yeah. so um, it's not and, and at the time, you know, as you know, you had just described, it wasn't something that they could just openly, you know, disclose and and get help for, you know, that there was a lot of shame that was built up in it as well. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm glad to see that, you know, as a culture, you know, we have become a little bit more sensitized to the, these things happening and um, validating them and, and providing some help when, when we do discover that they've happened. And it's really hard because if you say nothing, which is what, you know, what a perpetrator, I'll call him a perpetrator, and that's not the word I want to use, but somebody who finds themselves making really poor choices in that area, you know, they're asking that the victim says nothing because then there's no action, right? Right. And it becomes there's this pressure to to say nothing and do nothing. But that can't that can't go on that way. Right. That's just not safe for people. And that's where trauma, you know, really embeds itself. Oh, that's absolutely right. 
It's an interesting topic and, you know, we could talk about it all day long. Um, <laughs> I would love to also talk and ask you about your work with anger management strategies with the inmate population. Right. Um, I know you must have spent, gone in pretty deep on that topic being your dissertation. Right, right. And it was a follow-up from my, my master's thesis as well. So my master's thesis was more like a theoretical type of study around um, different types of verbal anger cues versus like what it what how do we know that something is an assertive cue versus an aggressive cue and then I followed up with that and for my dissertation I completed treatment programs with inmates um, looking at different types of anger management strategies so the the two specific strategies we looked at would be more of like a progressive muscle relaxation training like the idea of lowering stress to reduce angry, aggressive impulses. So we did had a lot of measures, but we wanted to look at reduction of anger as a state and then also aggression within the, the jail population. And then we compared that with more of what we would consider a cognitive behavioral approach, you know, reframing some of the dysfunctional thoughts and, you know, looking at how to, you know, establish some more better um, patterns of thinking that might help um, that as well. So it was looking at those different types of strategies that today we may utilize together, but we wanted to see, you know, whether there was one that was preferred versus the other. And you know, they, they as as you see with a lot of evidence-based research, they both did pretty well. You know, so they both had some improvement in the reduction of, of aggressive impulses and improvement of the state of anger or reduction in the state of anger. Um, but, and, and what one would have considered at the time that saying, oh, no, no, you're just stressed out, let's reduce your stress, might be more preferable to your thinking is not right, right? <laughs> that, you know, both were pretty well tolerated and, and they did a, a pretty good job. So, um, so that was a, it was a fascinating, you know, study. Um, I had really good participation. Um, I was a little bit surprised, though, because going into the study, I had this expectation that, you know, what I would imagine would be a group of, you know, like domestic violence, adult men, you know, that would be the, the makeup of my population. It ended up being just a very young, like 19 year old, um, impulsive, you know, um, anger, like, a, a, like aggression, violent outburst type of type of population, which I didn't really expect. But but that that's that's what it ended up being. It was a, a much younger population that I had anticipated technically adult but much younger than I thought and how did you how did you get your population where'd they come from so so they were all inmates um, serving time in a county jail after post sentencing um, all of their um, their charges were violence related and um, or aggression or even property destruction you know had a few of those um, but the participation was voluntary um, you know we went through the IRB you know, to make sure that it was fully approved because they're considered a, a, a protected population because they, they are incarcerated. Um, but, you know, it, it, it did work out to my favor that although it was voluntary, you know, they, they seemed to really enjoy getting out of the cell and coming to group and sitting in group together, right? So it, 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 in and of itself, they, they preferred that to, to being in their cell. So it, I, I had really good participation I gathered um, data for approximately about a year and then um, did the statistical analysis after that. Huh. That's, that's fascinating. Did you have criteria around substance use and, and yes. what that looked like? Yeah, so we actually did um, what you call a DISC, uh, a Diagnostic Structural Interview, 
um, to ensure that we understood the population would be those needing treatment um, in order to participate. So we had a breakdown, you know, there, there was a significant portion of the population that had addictive disorders as well, um, but also some mental health issues were, were predominant. Hmm. Very fun. Yeah. How much um, research do you get to do now? So, so that's a really good question. Um, you know, a, a large part of my role is associated with um, outcomes and ensuring that we're tracking outcomes, that we're utilizing the data that we're gathering in our electronic health records, and that we're able to assess whether or not our programs are effective. You know, so although I wouldn't technically call it research, you know, we do statistical analysis on change scores. You know, we do, you know, track you know, um, like I had mentioned, the quality of life indicators earlier today as well. So, so it, to me, it, it is very in a, much in alignment with the research aspect. It's just not technically research. We're not publishing it. Yeah. What do you, um, so, so talk about your work with Pinnacle. What, you know, kind of what Pinnacle does, where, you know, maybe where they're located and the type of population that they're working with. Talk about that a little bit. Okay. So um, Pinnacle is a, a, an organization that treats addictive disorders. We provide all levels of care that one would encounter in addiction treatment, you know, from, you know, looking at, you know, medication-assisted treatment programs, outpatient, partial hospitalization and intensive outpatient programs, residential treatment, detox. Um, we have, you know, one of our, our um, facilities is in a hospital as well um, as a detox wing. We are located in eight states, um, California, Indiana, Ohio, Virginia, Kentucky, Georgia, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania. So each state we have, you know, a different array of treatment services that we provide. Um, and, and some of our states, we have the full continuum and some we have a partial continuum of care. And then we engage in referrals as well if we have you know, if the patient that we're working with has needs outside of our continuum in that state. So we treat um, primarily um, um, addiction primary um, disorders, although, you know, as one could imagine, you know, any type you're, anytime you're working on addiction treatment, you're going to have patients who have some mental health issues and concerns as well. <clears throat> That's a lot of states that you work in. How do you manage all of it? <laughs> so, you know, we have an amazing team. You know, we have um, a very dedicated team that is, um, is focused and passionate about doing this work, right? You know, so we're, we're, we're focused on, on trying to make improve, like make significant improvements in the quality of life for people who have addictive disorders. So all the way from, you know, are, do we have proper access? You know, can patients get into treatment? Do they have any barriers that we can try to remove? You know, um, we have an integrated call center. So patients can, you know, pick up the phone or loved ones can pick up the phone, get the call center and have that person connect them to, to resources in their area. So, you know, the team is, is phenomenal, you know, and, and we're very focused on making sure that we're providing the best care possible. So you talked a little bit about, you know, staff members that may tend towards a little bit more punitive approach right and um and how to train that or shift their position depending on what they need um and, and also meeting a client where they're at 
So, right. you know, if you were to have a client come in and we, and, you know, and I think we've talked before, probably not, you know, not in this episode, but we've talked before about, you know, homeless population, when someone comes in with serious, persistent mental health issues, um, that you have to make some hard decisions there sometimes. Um, but I love the approach. So I'm going to try not to read too much into it, but how do you look at a, someone like that? Right. So, so I, I don't think it's, it's that unusual because if you think about it in any setting, you know, if you're talking about a, a pediatric ward, you know, if you have a patient or I'm sorry, if you have a nurse that, that just doesn't like kids, right. For whatever reason, it's just not the right fit for them. So in any type of work setting that you have, you, you may have someone that for whatever reason, it's just not the right fit. Um, working with um, within the addiction treatment industry, you know, it's it, it, there are challenges associated with that. I mean, you know, individuals come in, they don't feel well, you know, they're irritable, they, 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 they have, you know, things seem to be falling apart in their lives, they may have a spouse that wants to leave, their, their job may be on the line. So they have a lot of things that are going, going wrong in their life. So if you have any type of staff person who is not able to be compassionate about that, you know, that it just somehow rubs them the wrong way, they may, they may personalize, you know, what's going on in that person's life and think that it's it, it, that interaction or dynamic with them and it's not. So, um, so, you know, being able to identify it as, you know, leadership in that organization and coach, you know, patients along or coach staff along, you know, can be extremely helpful, you know, explain to them, listen, this behavior that you see happening may feel like it's about you. It's not. It's part of the disease. It's part of it's part of the, the issue that the person's coming to treatment for. And here are some of the skills that I'm going to help you. I'm going to give you tools that are going to help you in working with that person. If you don't do that, if you don't provide that additional consultation and training and support for the staff, then you'll start to see things like, you know, one more time you do that and you're out of here. I'm kicking you out. You know, and, and you don't want to see that. You, you want to see programs, you know, trying to improve so that they can better meet the needs of their patients, not, you know, moving patients along because they don't fit what they want in the program. You know, it's just a slightly different way of viewing it, seeing it as the patient's just the patient. How does my program better meet their needs as opposed to, you know, identifying, you know, this is a, a, a patient I just don't want in here, so I'm going to move them along. That's that that's that's not that's not treatment, you know. So we really want to make sure we're addressing that. I love that a compassionate, really compassionate approach. Um, and and when you have a client who comes in and and really just isn't a good fit for your program for whatever reason, um, it's it's very tempting to say, look, you just don't fit into our culture here, and we're going to have to you know send you away, which is you know feeds into that very abandonment issue that most of them have, and the connection issue that most of them have. That's probably you know <clears throat> excuse me at the core of of uh, of half of their illness, right? And, right. and we're going to repeat that, it. <laughs> that, that is such a great point, and I'm so glad you brought that up because you're right. You're right. So. So, you know, if you have, and, and here are some things I look for when I'm looking at a patient who has, is either at risk of being discharged administratively or has been at discharge administratively. A couple of things I'll look for is what were, what were the interventions that we tried to use to help with the behaviors that, that came up that were disruptive or identified as needing to be addressed? 
Now, now, don't get me wrong. If we have, you know, we're residential treatment, we're not a lockdown facility. So if a patient comes in and is exhi exhibiting dangerous behavior or violent behavior, that's, it's not the right level of care, you know, but some of the behavior is just, you know, challenging behavior, right? So if challenging behavior came up, let's say it's cursing, you know, walking up and down the, down the hallway, um, fist clenched, cursing. Well, that's, that's, you know, not ideal, right? It's not going to be very helpful in recovery. It's definitely a behavior that we, we may see. So what are the interventions that we try to use to help that patient learn new behaviors to have them be more successful in recovery? So I would expect to see that there are some behaviors or attempts to provide some interventions to help that patient be more successful in treatment. Um, so that's kind of what I what I, I would look for. I would want to make sure that we're doing everything we can, that we're expecting challenging behaviors first, that it's it's not an anomaly. We expect that people will come in and they'll struggle, and that we have tools for the staff on how to help the patient learn new adaptive adaptive behaviors that will be that help them be more successful. And that I, I want to see some of that in the treatment process um, prior to reaching the end of the line and saying, okay, you can't be successful in our program because, well, we haven't really even tried, right? So, um, and our programs are, are really good at that. You know, we, we do have some really solid trainings that we do to make sure that, that staff are aware of, of how, to, how to handle challenging behaviors and how to work with the patient and keep them engaged. I love, I love that approach. It makes me think, I'm thinking about, you know, clients, this, this is a population that comes with a lot of trauma often. Right. I mean, very few of them do not have, have experienced some significant trauma, big T's, lots of little T's. And, and that, and especially when that comes from their childhood and they've experienced it, that's what they've known. They, right. they really have the capacity to use and, and, you know, they're all a little bit different, but they, they've learned how to use language to their benefit, right? Either to, right. Either to calm everybody down and make, keep the peace or to really, really dig, right? To dig in right. and they'll know your weaknesses and they can use oh, that yes. or, right? These guys have some skills. These people have some skills that if you haven't done your work, they're gonna, they're gonna send you off the charts and triggers because they know how to protect themselves. Right. And, and at times the behavior is, it, it, so behavior has a function, right? Behavior just doesn't, doesn't tend to be random. It tends to have a, a very specific function. And sometimes the behavior is, you know, don't mess with me, right? <laughs> and and, and in, the, in the setting where that person came from, it may have been very adaptive, very helpful. But then when you're trying to help improve connection, right? Because as we know, lack of connection can fuel addiction. Right, so we want to help build connection and build trust, which is not easy, right? And then at times, if you see where the person engages in behavior and they're, like you said, abandoned or kicked out, you know that reinforces that belief of okay, I there's just something really wrong with me, because look, you, even you abandoned me, right? So we want to try to avoid that and try to make sure that our our programs are designed to 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 meet the patient where they are, that we are highly skilled and we're able to help them with whatever comes up to the extent that we need to keep everybody safe as well. Yeah, it's incredible work and, and, it's, and, it's, and I say it's a challenging population and you've talked about that too, but 
It's also, these are, these are some of the most highly functional, intelligent people that I have ever met in my life. That right. they have skills and abilities that with just a little bit of tweaking, they become some of the most successful people in the world. They're that, they're that talented, right? And it's so, it's, it's, it's so interesting to me to watch them go through the program and get healthy and shift those skills and talents that they've been utilizing maybe in, you know, in um, selling drugs and marketing drugs and getting really good at that. And they shift that just a little bit because they're managing a ton of people, right? They're doing a career. And, and to be able to shift that into, you know, more community oriented building and growing environments is like, uh, it's pretty incredible to watch that happen. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And that's what I find very rewarding about this work as well. You know, um, one, one thing that I, I do tell, you know, teams when I talk with them about this is, um, you know, we, as, a, as a field, as even as a professional field, we do a really lousy job at predicting who's going to make it. <laughs> you know, and we believe we know, like, I mean, I've worked in this in, uh, I, more years than I can even like calculate my head back. But, um, but you know, you, you, you don't really know who's going to make it because for every person who you were sure they were going to make it and they ended up relapsing despite everything they've done. And then you have another person who, you know, comes back six months later and says, you know, thank you so much for all you've done. I'm still clean. You know, I mean, you, you just don't, you don't know who's going to make it. So, so what I recommend is it is in our best interest from a therapeutic standpoint to assume everyone makes it because then we come to the table, you know, with the kind of hope we need to bring hope even when the person doesn't have hope themselves that day. And, and that, in that way we can, if anything, be a positive catalyst, you know, because we won't know who's gonna make it because life is really challenging, right? I mean, where, where we run into problems is when we assume life is supposed to be easy, it's not. Life is really, really hard, you know? So making sure that we consistently come to the table with you know, therapeutic interventions that we are, we are clear and, um, and uncomplicated in our communication, but we also have hope for the future for each person that we meet, I think is very, very important. Well, it's vital. I mean, it's vital because here's the piece, the, another piece that this, this population has learned, right, is they read body language. There's so much body language out there and so much intuitive connection that we have as hu human beings. And, and this particular population is super in tune to that because they've had to, a lot of them have had to as a survival technique. And so if you come into a setting with them and you have a belief that they're not gonna make it, they may not consciously know and pick up on that, but they will unconsciously pick up on that. It's like right. you can't hide those, those thought processes and those belief systems, right? And so if you, if you really can't think of it in a positive way, it, it really will impact them even if you can't see it and measure it. Right, and I think that's that touches back, Shelley, to how you described about doing our own work, right? Because it, you know, we, we need to come to the table being not just hopeful for the patient, but hopeful in general, right? We, you know, that, that things are gonna be okay, that we can you know, navigate this world and, and, you know, and find our way. Um, because when we're working with, with someone you know, it, it's so critical that we are authentic and that we are, um, we're open and authentic as human beings because we expect 
that they're going to be authentic, open, and honest as well. You know, so if we can meet them there, you know, even if we're telling them something that they don't want to hear, you know, I remember what, talking with a with a, a wife once, you know, where she's like, you know, I'm going to divorce him. He's never going to see his kids again. I said, he will see his kids again, right? So, but let's talk about this, you know. So, I mean, just being honest and 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 you know, un, and being able to to understand and have compassion, but also be frank, right? I think that, I think there's a lot of, um, a lot of value and power in that when, you know, they can have someone who is going to just be honest with them, right? Be honest, but caring at the same time. Right. And, and be realistic because there's so much irrational thinking and hurt and pain that comes right. up in those conversations. And to be able to, you know, state the obvious, like, well, it doesn't really work like that. And I recognize right. that you're hurting and you're in pain. Yes. And that's where you're coming from. Let's deal with that so that you right. can be present with, because of course you want your, your, you know, their father to be in their lives. Of course you want, right. right. That's really what you want your kids to be healthy. You want what's best for your children, but you're hurt. And there's been right. a lot of pain caused here. Right. And, and that's, it's so important exactly. to, to talk about what's going on. Right. Exactly. Yeah. It's hard stuff and people have hard things. It's, I love what you said, right? Life was not supposed to be easy. It's right. We want it to be right. That's why we right. have an, op an, an, an opioid epidemic because we wanted right. to escape from all of the pain and somehow we've right. got to have a pain-free life and it just isn't, it's not supposed to be that way. That's not human, human existence. Right. It'd be nice, <laughs> but, it, but it's just not. And, you know, to the extent that we can recognize that it's okay to hurt, right? It's okay to hurt and that it doesn't last forever and that there are, you know, there are days that are going to be good days, right? So let's, let's talk about how to find that balance. And, and it's interesting as you, as, as I've done my work and as I've worked through my, you know, my pain and my trauma and my whatever, I find that, and, and I, I've heard people tell me this, right? They would tell me this over and over again. It's possible to feel joy in the hard, in the, in the oh, really yeah. difficult. And I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. But today I can say, oh, I can be in the middle of something really emotionally hard and go, I am so grateful, right? I am right. so grateful that I made it through this part so I can manage this part, or I'm so grateful the sun is shining today, or whatever that is. And those are skills that it, you really can feel joy in the hard. Right. Beautifully said. I, I couldn't agree more. And I think the challenge with that is that if we are not being stretched if we are not being challenged then we're not growing and that's mm -hmm. stagnation and and i don't think anybody's happy there either i agree so laurie i love that that you come on and that you you know you've got the background that you do because i love the research piece and and i love picking brains and going oh what about this because <laughs> the one thing i love more than anything is to learn right to learn something yeah, new and so i love that you bring that to the table um, I have a, I have a feeling, I know that Pinnacle does a lot of really good work and good quality work and is continuing to improve and, and there's people that are going to want to connect with your program and connect with you. What's the best way for them to do that? Um, so, um, people could look, look me up on LinkedIn, um, Lori Ryland. You could also email me lori.ryland at pinnacletreatment.com. And you could always just, you know, look up Pinnacle, call and, and leave a message there. That's fine. 
Very cool. And, and there's lots of people, you, I mean, you have a lot of staff that are highly trained that'll answer those phones and be able to get someone where they need to go, which is right. so helpful. Right, exactly, yeah. exactly. Now, our call center is extremely good at connecting patients to the facilities near them. In fact, they, they would know much more than I would as well. You know, if any particular state, any community within that state, what are the resources nearby? They're not even just our resources, but how to connect patients to what they need. Um, they would be the experts in that. But um, if there's something specific that I can answer, I'm happy to happy to take the call. Very cool. Thank you for that. And one last question, just because you know I might need something really cool to read. Is do you have any books that are top of your list that like you've recently read or that you come back to every year that you would recommend? Um. You know, I'm, I'm reading a book right now called Clean. That's that's really good. It's like a history of, um, you know, addictive treatment. Um, also, there's one called Beyond Addiction. It's about the craft model of um, of treatment, which is community reinforcement and um, and family treatment. I think it is craft. Um, but it, it's it's essentially looking at how family treatment. Um, can be improved to help the person who is struggling with addiction to be more successful. So it's a very CBT approach, which I really like, and it kind of breaks down some of those um, those issues, like like what does enabling mean, right? Mm -hmm. You know, like like it, it'll say something like a family member says, well, okay, I don't want to enable my loved one. Can I? make them pancakes on Sunday. Yes, of course you can love your loved one, right? You know, but don't pay off their drug dealer. You know I mean? That, that it helps to navigate some of those more like addiction cliches and, and, and statements um, for families to understand how best to support their loved ones. So the craft model is very helpful as well. Um, so, you know, but definitely, um, I, you know, I do try to keep up on the evidence-based practices as well been doing a lot of reading and training lately in acceptance and commitment therapy and how they're finding it um, being effective with addiction treatment. So um, definitely check that out because mm -hmm. that's, that's a lot of um, really good application in what we do. It's excellent. It is. Those are excellent topics. So thanks for sharing that. And thanks for being with us today, Lori. Of course. I'm happy to. I always have a great time chatting with you, Shelley. Well, it's been fun and, you know, I'm like, okay, I got to get Lori back on again or at least just go out to lunch with her so I can pick her brain some yes, more. Yeah, let's do that. Can't wait. And I noticed your cute little cat came in in the background. I know people, <laughs> all, all the listeners can't see, but they'll be yeah. interested to know that she jumps up in the windowsill and walks behind the stuff and she's just as cute as can be. So Yeah, that, her name is Karma. <laughs> she's black and white and she's beautiful. So anyway, uh, thank fantastic. Thanks, Lori. All right. Thanks, Shelly. Have a good one.